Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. Revelation chapter number 21, very back of your Bible. Uh, let me just echo the welcome to all of you. If you are a parent or a grandparent and you came to maybe watch one of your kids sing or, or your grandchild be dedicated today, uh, welcome. Super glad that you're here. We have a habit of preaching through the Bible. We take a book and we preach through it verse by verse and we just allow the Bible to guide the conversation instead of us hobby horsing it and, and, and just talking about what we want to. So we have been working through the book of Revelation and we're to the end, really. We're at chapter number 21 and we get to this week and next week, try to wrap our heads around a little bit of heaven and what heaven would be like. And I'm, I've been looking forward to this literally for months and can't wait to dive into this particular passage of scripture. But I thought I'd start this morning by talking about mine and my wife's um, purchase habits when it comes to vehicles, we have a habit of buying used vehicles with cash and avoiding car loans. It's just what we've done uh, really our entire marriage with the exception of one time. There was one time we were driving a little Nissan Sentra. Uh, it was white. A Sentra, I think compact car gets shrunk, even a little smaller, okay? This 2001 Sentra was tiny. It was like a go-kart with four doors. It was, it was so little. I don't think the speedometer registered at 100. I mean, it was, it was a small car. And it kept breaking down on us. Like every six to eight weeks, the radiator would go out, then the alternator would go out, then the radiator would pop again, and then there was this hose, and then there was a sensor. And it was just, it was endless. And it was getting so frustrating. And I saw this ad, I forget where, but it was an ad that the Toyota dealership in town was leasing Toyota Camrys on three-year leases for $151 a month. I thought this, no, they're not. Like that's not true. But sure enough, I went and I checked it out and I don't know if they had extra inventory. I don't know if they were trying to make new Toyota customers. I have no idea how this deal existed, but it did. And we decided to sell our Sentra and to get this lease. And it worked out really well. We gave it back after three years and we bought a, another used car, but we got this Toyota Camry. It was a new car. No one had ever driven it. There were, we wanted white or green because red was just a little too like, a little too much of a pop, but they only had red. And so we took the red and uh, that's a picture of my wife at the time who was, who was super excited not to have to drive this little car that, that broke down all the time. And I can remember going from our Sentra into this new car and I can remember the way that car felt, the way those tires drove, the way that car smelled, right? How many of you love the new car smell, right? I can remember just feeling this new car and how, how good it felt, honestly. Some of you know what it's like maybe to move into a new home that you had built to your specifications or perhaps something just as simple as opening up a new phone that's never been unboxed and doesn't have anyone's fingerprints on it. You know what it's like to get something new and how, how good that feels, right? Today, we're going to talk about not moving into a new car, or moving into a new home or a new iPhone, but moving into a new world. 
Like the world, the heavens, the whole earth is new and we get to have this as an inheritance. And today we get to learn a little bit about this. So I want you to read with me about heaven. And I, I'm just gonna explain the text as we walk through. At the very end, we'll make some application as to why you need to know this and why this is so impactful for your life. But let's try to understand a little bit of what it says. I'll be honest, my words will probably be very flimsy on this topic. I don't think my words can do it justice, but I'll try my best to help us understand. So verse number one of Revelation 21, you see that heaven is a new creation. Verse one, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. Now in the Greek, there's two words for new. One word means new in time. Like if you get new shoes, shoes aren't new. They're not a new invention. They're just new to you at that moment in time, right? There's another word for new in the Greek that means new kind. This is the word that is used here in Revelation. It would be like you going from a rotary phone to an iPhone. They're, they're both phones, but this is a new kind of phone. What this is saying is there is a new heaven and a new earth, and it's like a new kind of heaven and a new kind of earth. You say, what would that mean? Well, we'll understand maybe a bit more as we work through the text, but there's a new heaven and new earth. New, but physical, right? Earth is physical. There is spiritual, and God redeems the spiritual, but there is the physical and God redeems and restores the physical, the material, right? Bodies, trees, mountains, stars. This is a rewoven, perfect, healed, material world. A world in which people in their new bodies, we read about that in chapter 20, will walk real streets with real feet and they will see real colors with real eyes and they will leap and they will march and they will dance and they will eat and they will have a physical experience in a new heaven and a new earth, which is so helpful to know because so many people think of heaven as this sky, pie in the sky by and by, right? I don't know if there's pie in heaven. I like to think, yes, we're definitely gonna eat. I know that much. There is feasting. Jesus ate in his glorified body, right? He ate a fish. So there is eating, I'm not sure if there's pie or not, but it's not in the sky by and by. It's a new heaven and a new earth and a physical embodied existence. And I like how uh, Augustine of Hippo, the fifth century church father, wrote about this in his book, City of God. He made this argument. He said, think of this world. This world has many immensities and many beauties. Think about what we get to enjoy in this world, right? To, to look at the painted wings of a butterfly. To sit and see the sunset over the ocean and the sky pops with colors. To go on a mountain vacation and to see that mountain backdrop with a lake right at the foot of the mountain that is turquoise and clear and beautiful. Like these things grab our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our, the beauty of the world, right? And Augustine says this, he says that this is what God gave sinful man to enjoy. Think about what a new heaven, a new earth would be. 
If we get all the beauty and all the immensity here in this life, on this earth, think about what a whole nother order, when we're going from rotary phone to iPhone, think about what we can enjoy. I don't know what all of that means. All I know is it is going to be awesome. And there is a new heaven and a new earth, and it gives you the rationale why. Because it says the first heaven and the first earth, they're passed away, which is completely in line with the Bible. It's completely in line with what we read last week at the end of chapter number 20. If you remember verse 11 of chapter 20, look at it if you would. It told us that at the great white throne judgment, I saw the great white throne, him that sat on it. And listen to this. From whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. Well, don't we need a, a heaven and an earth? Yeah, you're getting a new one, right? Peter actually gives the most prolific uh, writing on this in Second Peter, when Peter writes and says, quote, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. You say, how great? I don't know. What kind of like a train horn or like a, a cymbal clanging or what? I don't know, but a great noise. And the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burnt up. Verse 13 says, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, we look for a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. There is this consistent message. And I could go back to the prophets. I could go back to the psalmist. I could go back all the way through the Bible that there is a new heaven and a new earth that awaits us. That's what eternity is. It is not a temporary heaven in the sky, but it is physical. It is made. And people debate about things that are in this, in this verse. Like, does this mean the old heaven is completely dissolved and done away with, gone, and then there's a whole new one? Or is the old one being like melted down and repurposed? I have opinions, but I don't, I'll leave it to the side. People really get worked up about the no more sea part. Like, what do you mean there's no more sea? And there's lots of speculation on that, right? It means, it doesn't mean there's no water because we'll see as we work through verse 20 or chapter 21 that there is a river, there is water, but there's no large body of salt water. Why? I, I'm not entirely sure. I don't know. My best guess is that the sea for most of human history was looked at as a terrifying thing. The sea was this thing you could not tame and you did not venture out into very far because it was chaotic and it was unpredictable and it would eat your lunch. It was to be a seafaring people was like the bravest of the brave. So perhaps it's just saying that, that that terror and that chaos and all of that is gone. The unpredictable is gone. But there's a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation. Then in verse number two, it tells you that this new creation has a new capital city. It says, I heard a great voice, excuse me, verse number two. I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Remember when Jesus told his disciples right before he died, I'm going, but I'm gonna go prepare a place for you. And I'll come again, I'll receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. I'm gonna go prepare a place. Prepare what place? Oh, this place. A new capital city, a new Jerusalem, which we will elaborate on next week at length. But suffice it to say for now that this city is prepared as a bride 
adorned for her husband. Now, if you know anything about a bride on her wedding day, you know that that is a no holds barred, pull out all the stops, do everything you can to adorn yourself day, right? That is the day where the most expensive outfit she's ever bought or ever owned or ever wore is on her. That is the day where we're gonna pay the esthetician and the cosmetologist and the whoever else to do the hair and to do the makeup and to, and to make everything be as eye-poppingly beautiful as ever. And I've, I've attended a lot of weddings. I've officiated a lot of weddings. I've never seen a bride come in where it didn't just stop you and stun you every time. And if a bride in her finite power can prepare and work and pull out all the stops to prepare herself, think about what it would be like if a God, an infinite power, an omnipotent God pulled out all the stops to prepare and to make this city as eye-poppingly gorgeous as he possibly can. Like that is tough to wrap your mind around all that will be entailed in just this one city on a new earth in a new creation. But verse number three tells us that heaven involves a new communion. This perhaps is the most potent verse in all of the chapter. Verse three, I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Perhaps the most important verse in all the chapter because number one, it says, behold. Hey, look, watch this, pay attention, behold. And then it repeats the same thing basically five times in a row. The tabernacle of God is with men. God will dwell with them. It says that twice. He will be their God. They will be his people. It's all trying to communicate the same fundamental message that there is now a communion between God and man, God and his people, that heaven has come down, not us going up, it coming down, him dwelling with us. And we can look through the progression of what God has done, if I could say in different dispensations of his presence with his people. And we are enamored by, and we thank God that he chose to dwell with, with his people in a tabernacle and in a temple where his, his glory was there with them at times. We are grateful for the Old Testament saints and we can see the spirit of God coming on them temporarily at times. The spirit of the Lord comes on Samson or David prays, let not your spirit depart from me. But then there is this upgrade, if I could say it that way, where the incarnation happens, right? And God is with his people. But as the great Christmas carol says, veiled in flesh he was, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. That the image of the invisible God is there in Jesus and Jesus leaves and he leaves his spirit, not to be temporary, but to be a, a permanent forever gift for his people so that Jesus could say, I'll never leave you and never forsake you. All of these are, are iterations, so to speak, of God's presence being with his people, but it is never quite like this. This is fuller, this is grander, this is richer, this is deeper. I will dwell with them the tabernacle in heaven that we've read about through Revelation now come down. 
I will be their God. They will be my people. We will be together. Think about what that means. As grand as a new creation would be, maybe new mountain ranges. Maybe we have new senses. Maybe we'll go from five senses to eight senses. And we have infrared vision. I, I don't know. I'm speculating. As grand as the new city will be and a new capital, the grandest of them all is that God is with his people. And the implications of that are so fast. Think about just this one little wrinkle of our existence. Loneliness. Gone. Gone. Loneliness plagues people. We are more connected as a society than any society that's ever been. But perhaps more lonely. Right? We got all these online friendships and our social media platforms and Sure, we can text them and we can communicate with them and we have, we have more number, numbers in our digital Rolodex now, if you remember the old Rolodex. We're so connected. We collect these online friendships like they're stamps. But many times we're so lonely, right? You could be sitting in this room filled with people and be lonely. And loneliness drives you to do dumb stuff. Like it's behind some of the worst decisions you've ever made that you stayed in that relationship too long because you were lonely or you were scared that you would be lonely or you compromised yourself sexually because you didn't want to be alone and you wanted to hang on to them. Some of you have been driven to substance abuse because you were lonely and you tried to mask the loneliness with the bottle or with the needle. Some of you have been so lonely that you attempted to take your life, or you know someone who attempted to take their life because they were so lonely. Just think about that one wrinkle of our existence, gone. No loneliness. God is with his people. They are with him. There is a, if I could say it this way, and I'm not sure it's the most theological way to say it, but there is a new level of presence. There is a new level of communion that we get to be with him and he gets to be with us. How beautiful is that? You know, a number of years ago, I think it was 2019, Great Britain actually decided the prime minister at the time, Theresa May, I think was her name. Don't quote me on that. Decided to appoint a new position in the, in the Great Britain government and they made a minister of loneliness. And they said they surveyed the country and they found hundreds of thousands of elderly people had gone a month without having a real conversation with anybody. They said, this is a problem. We need, we need to get someone to fix this. And what they found that loneliness was more deadly than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And I don't know how deadly smoking 15 cigarettes a day is. All I know is it's not that healthy for you, okay? And they said, we need to fix this. So this person's job was to create systems and programs to connect people at work and to connect people in the communities so they could have relationships and friendships, right? The minister of loneliness. Listen, that one's been around in Great Britain for four years, but there is, there is a minister of loneliness who's been around a whole lot longer than that, the ancient of days, who will minister to us in ways that I don't even think we can comprehend to be with him. There's a new communion. But it goes on to tell you not just a new communion. It tells you that heaven holds new comforts. This is the verse that kind of everyone knows about heaven, right? 
that this God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. Man, think about that. All of the pain that life has to throw at you, gone. One philosopher says that, that mankind is the only creature that when we're born, we can do nothing for ourselves except cry. We are born crying and we live crying and we die crying. But in heaven, we do not live crying. God himself wipes away the tears from their eyes. Like, you get that? I think if you're a dad in the room, you especially get this. I don't know how it works in your home, but I know in my home, whenever there are tears from, say, the toddler who's two years old, they want to be comforted. And try as I may, my ability to console my toddler when, say, he falls and breaks his arm, not breaks his arm, maybe hurts his arm, will downgrade it. My ability to console him is extremely limited compared to that of my wife. Every time I may pick him up, I'm, I, may, I may hold him. This literally just happened a minute ago. We were singing in the song service and I picked up uh, my three-year-old who's sitting on the front row over there and mom walked down beside us and immediately his arms went you know, right to her. Mom walks up while I'm trying to console and boom, I mean, every time they want to beeline it right to her and they wanted to be comforted by her. You take care of my tears. You take care of my pain. This is one that God does not outsource this job. He doesn't, he doesn't delegate it to somebody else. God wipes away their tears. God takes away their pain. He comforts us. You say, man, that sounds too good to be true. Perhaps God knew you would think that. Because he says in verse number five, he that sat upon the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, write. And I love this. For these words are true and faithful. You get that? What I just said, this is not a pipe dream. This is not a fantasy. This is not pie in the sky by and by. This is not an illusion. This is not a fairy tale. I'm telling you, these words are true. These words are faithful. I will perform it. You could say it this way. The new is true. The new heaven, the new earth, the new capital, the new comforts, all of that, that new is true. And God says, you better bank on this. But then he says in verse number six, that heaven includes an old commitment. And this part is not new. This part's been around for a while. He that said unto me, he said unto me, it's done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And listen to this. I will give unto him that is the thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. I don't know that there's one word that needs to grab your attention this morning more than any other word in the passage. But for me, the one that grabbed my attention was freely. Free is the best price, right? Here's what he says. You want some of this? Are you thirsty for this? Like, does, does, this, does this give you some cravings? Are you thirsty? Listen, I will quench that thirst. I will give it to you and I will do it freely. This is the uniform message of the Bible that heaven is an open invitation to you that you can't accept it. That if you're thirsty, he will give you water to drink. 
This is what chapter 22 says. We'll read it. And when we get there in a couple weeks, that it, it echoes the exact same sentiment. This is what Jesus told the woman at the well. That, hey, you want to drink of the water of life and you'll never thirst again? And she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he explains it to her. And she's like, oh, you're not talking about physical water. You're talking about something different. You're talking about something for my soul. You're, like you're the Messiah. And he says, I will quench your thirst. I will take care of it. It is free. Salvation, redemption, the restoration of these things, a glorified body, heaven, all of these promises that are yes and amen in Jesus, they are free to us by the grace of God. We believe and accept them freely. And he says, I will give freely. And that, that's, that's like the gospel message. That's like the story of redemption. That's not new. That's been around for a long time. You understand this if you came to faith. I will give freely. I'm not one to use superlatives Loosely, like never and always. But you can mark this down. God will always save someone, give them a home in heaven, give them eternal life, forgive their sins. He will always do it if they will come to him in repentance and faith. If they will repent of their sin and put their faith on the Lord Jesus. He will always do it, never has he not. That is an old commitment that God has kept time and time and time again, 100% of the time without fail. He always saves, never has he not. And if, you've, if you're like, I want some of this, is that true? Yeah, it's true and faithful. How can I get it? Free. Repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus and by his grace, he will gift you heaven. But then verses seven and eight tells us that heaven is made for a new community. It says in verse seven, he that overcomes shall inherit all things. What, what things? These things, he just said. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the whoremongers and the sorcerers and the idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now listen to me. That part's not meant to be scary. That part's meant to be comforting. Now, if you don't know Jesus as your savior, that is scary, right? Hell is hot and forever is a long time. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But this is written to be a comfort to Christians. And what he's trying to say is this community, those that will be in my capital city, those that will be on this, this new heaven or this new earth, this is comprised exclusively of the people that are my children. And those that are not, those that are the unbelieving, those that are the idolaters, those that are the, the, the whoremongers or murderers, those, they are not involved in this community. They do not belong. They will not have a place. And this, these, we're separating the sheep from the goats. And this is going to be my people exclusively with me. And that is actually meant to be a heartwarming thought. Because we as Christians go through life and often there is this frustration and there is this, these things and these people that grind our gears and go against our grain. And more often than not, what is it? It is those that are flagrantly sinful 
who want to take that which God calls evil and trumpet it as good and celebrate it. And that oftentimes irks the fire out of us. Maybe it's just me. But what he's saying is that doesn't happen here. This is not a place where you will be fearful. You don't have to lock your doors. This is not a place where someone's going to take advantage of you or steal your stuff. There's no bad bosses here. There are no bad bosses who use people to make money. Doesn't exist. There is no one parading down a street of gold, celebrating as good that which is not good. Those parades don't exist in heaven. You don't have to worry about sending your kid to school and some counselor or physician at school planting thoughts in their eight-year-old mind that they should question their gender and be confused and then refer them to a doctor who's gonna mutilate your kid. That doesn't exist. All of those things that we're like, what is going on? Like, what are we doing? This doesn't make sense. This doesn't line up with the Bible. This is not righteous. This is not wholesome. This is, this is not okay. When we think that and we feel that, what he's trying to communicate is, this is a day where that doesn't exist anymore. This is a new community and a new creation with a new capital and a new comfort. This is heaven, right? This is something that should excite us. He's gonna go on to say what this new capital city is like, the new Jerusalem. But I wanna take a minute and explain what does he mean in verse seven that the overcomers get this? The victorious ones get this. You read that, verse seven? He that overcometh shall inherit all things. I'll be his God, he'll be my son. What do you mean overcomer? Like, I gotta be sinless? Like I can, I can never lose to my flesh. I can never lose to temptation or sin. No. Well, what do you mean overcomer? Well, thankfully, the same guy, John, who's writing this book under the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote an epistle as well under the inspiration of the Spirit. And you know what he said? He said, here's who the overcomers are. I'll read it to you. First John. Whoever's born of God, overcometh the world. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? You catch that? Who's the overcomer? How do we overcome? Our faith. Faith in what? Those that believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It all goes back to the same fundamental truth. We overcome, we are victorious, we are saved. How? By the grace of God, through faith in Jesus. It is the uniform message of the Bible. By grace, through faith in Jesus. The three most important prepositions in all the English language. By, through, in. By grace, through faith in Jesus. Those are the overcomers, the one who have put their faith in Jesus. Doesn't mean that you're sinless. Doesn't mean you'll never have anything to repent of. But those are the ones who get this gift. This is actually, if you have ever sung the old hymn, Faith is the Victory. It's singing that idea, right? Faith is the victory, faith is the victory. Oh, glorious victory that overcomes the world. What's that about? It's about this. It's about Revelation 21. It's about 1 John 5. Who are the overcomers? Those that have faith. Now, what does this mean for us? 
I'm done for now explaining heaven. I'll give you more next week. What does this mean for you? I actually, I didn't realize this until I was singing in the song service just a few moments ago. Both the points of application I want to give, we sang today. And I'll give you the lyric. I wrote it down on my phone as we were singing. We were singing the song, Alleluia, right? The Lord Almighty reigns. And here's what one of the verses says. It says, certain of that day. Of what day? The day that we're going to be in heaven and praising God. Certain of that day, Christ we will proclaim. Oh, that more would share the prize, salvation in his name. Now, we just sang that lyric moments ago. And what it says is the truth. If you're certain of that, you would want more people to share in it. So we should proclaim Jesus. There is an evangelistic implication to heaven that I would want my friends, my family, my coworkers. Jesus even goes so far as to say, your enemies, you should love them and you should want to share this, that heaven is an open invitation and you should be extending invitations. God has, but be his ambassador and extend those and go share the good news. Tell somebody, right? Have a faith that is not covert, but over. Be bold. Now be winsome and tasteful with your words. Don't be odd for God, but do share. Do open your mouth. Go tell somebody, right? We're certain of that day. So Christ, we will proclaim, oh, that more would share the prize. Salvation's in his name. We wanna share that with more and more people. The second implication and perhaps the most, the most profound one to me at least was when we were singing our opening song, we sang, since Jesus came into my heart. You know the real peppy one that makes you want to snap and tap your feet, that one? We sang this line. I will go there to dwell in that city I know. Uh, where are you going to dwell? What city? That city, the new Jerusalem, the new capital. And I know I'm going to go there. And I'm, so, I'm happy, then it says, so happy as onward I go. That is perhaps the most profound thought through implication that you could have in relationship to heaven. If I'm gonna go there and I know it, then right now I'm happy so happy as onward I go. If that is my destination, then my journey will be filled with happiness. My journey will be filled with joy. You say, what do you mean? I mean what the Bible says. Those who truly have a hope of heaven, those who truly think about it, those who truly steep their heart in that truth, begin to be somewhat impervious to the trials and the pains of life and what life has to throw at us today. And, and we may forget who this book was written to. It's, it's written to all of us, but John's specific audience, do you remember in chapter two and chapter three? I know it's been a long time ago. John wrote to the seven churches and each of those churches were being, I mean, battered and bruised. They were, they were all facing intense persecution. And John offered them not a political strategy, not money, not a vacation. He even told them their persecution was going to get worse. But what he offered them was a hope of heaven. And that hope of heaven, history would tell, allowed those people to go through life with such immense fortitude that it was like they couldn't be stopped. One church father would go so far as to say that the blood of the martyrs was like seed. 
The more they killed them, the more the church proliferated, the more it spread. And these truths allowed these people to stare down the barrel of the worst that life had to offer. Hunger, imprisonment, torture, death, being cast out of communities, being cut off from the economic systems, all of those things they faced. But they faced it with gumption. How? I dare say it's because they had a hope of heaven. I dare say it was because they knew that I will go there to dwell in that city. So I'm happy, so happy is onward I go. This is maybe most profoundly illustrated, I'm done with this illustration, by Howard Thurman. Howard Thurman was a lot of things. He was a, he was a theologian, he was a pastor, he was a professor, he was a lot of things. Not a perfect man, but, but a good man. A Baptist minister, actually, in the mid-20th century. Howard Thurman actually embraced a... Uh, radical nonviolence theology when it came to problems with the world and society. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was mentored and got much of, of his marching orders, more or less, from Thurman on how to protest what, what was wrong in society, but to do it without violence and without riots and without uh, looting and those sorts of things. Thurman was invited in 1947 to speak at Harvard as part of the Ingersoll Lectures. Those are, it's a famous series of lectures that happens annually and still goes on to this day. And he chose to speak on the meaning of the Negro spirituals. The title of his lecture, and you can actually Google it, you can actually buy it, it is published, is The Negro Spiritual Speaks of Life and Death. And he addresses in that lecture the single greatest criticism that faced these songs that came from these communities of slaves. And the criticism goes like this. All of their songs are riddled with these allusions to like future stuff. Heaven, crowns, robes of white. Like it's just, they're peppered with that stuff. And they would have been better off without it. The argument goes like this. They were so fixated on what would be one day and joyous about that, that it made them docile and it made them passive and it made them submissive in those moments. And they actually would have, would have had more grit and fought harder and been able to accomplish freedom sooner had they not had these songs in this hope of heaven. That's the argument. And Thurman says in his lecture, I'm paraphrasing, nothing could be further from the truth. He says, I'm going to quote him, the facts have made it clear that this sung faith of these people served to deepen the capacity of the slaves for endurance and their capacity for suffering. It taught them how in suffering, how to ride high in life, how to look squarely in the face of those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope, but they fashioned a hope that their environment with all of its cruelty could not crush. What he says is the hope of heaven gave them grit. The hope of heaven gave them gumption. The hope of heaven allowed them to ride high when they were being beaten low. And this did something for them internally that nothing else in all of the world could have ever done. It allowed them to face the worst that life could throw at them with hope and with courage. And he's right. 
he is saying that what happened in this community is what happened in the early church. And I would argue this, it's what should happen to God's people today. But tell me if I'm wrong. And I don't mean to step on your toes, but I'm gonna step on your toes. I love you, but I'm gonna do it. I look around at most Christians, including myself, and I see some flimsy, soft people. The things that we cry about are laughable. We're not crying about being thrown to the lions. We're not crying about being thrown in jail for our beliefs. We're not crying about being oppressed and beaten down and no freedoms. We're crying about my patio furniture got delayed a week. We're crying about my boss gave them the promotion and not me. Now I only make triple minimum wage instead of quadruple minimum wage. Like, this is us. We've become so soft and so ungritty. It's not even funny. Like the smallest little thing happens and we'll miss church for eight weeks. One person offends our sensibilities in church and we're out. I'm done, I'm quitting on the family because they didn't shake my hand. They walked by me, they shook someone else's hand. I love you, but grow up. For real. I, I want an environment where people are friendly and that we don't step on each other's toes. I, I want an environment where, where we can get along. I absolutely do, but come on. That's the worst we have to face and we throw in the towel because of that? Because they weren't all that they said that they were cracked up to be? Come on. Maybe, I don't know, maybe we just don't have a true sense of heaven. Maybe we're not meditating on this. Maybe we're not longing for this. Maybe our citizenship is a little too much here and a little not enough there. We are supposed to be people who, I hate to quote it again, but I will one more time. We are to be the people that I will go there to dwell in that city I know. So I'm, I'm happy, so happy as onward I go. People who can face the worst that life has to offer, but still face it with a hope in heaven. Life is short. Heaven is real and awesome. If you believe in Jesus, you're gonna be there. So if life is short and heaven is around the corner, why are we complaining today? Right? Why are we complaining today? I hope that we can take some time this week. I hope that we can take some time next week and we can stop and we can think about and be thankful for the true and faithful word. There is a heaven and it's for us. It's our inheritance. It is a free gift. If you're thirsty, come. Come.